It was Christmas and everybody seemed to be having a brilliant time, but Father O'Rourke was not happy. He suddenly said to Father Kelly, you know what, I'm fed up with all this good priestly behavior and clean living. Why don't we go out and have a good old sinful night? We could drink, find loose women and do whatever takes our fancy. Are you mad, said Father Kelly. This is a small town, everyone knows who we are. He says, I'm not talking about here. He says, why don't we just get on our regular clothes, get off our clerical collar, go into the big city and just do whatever we want. And so they took the train to the city. They arrived home the next morning, worse for wear. And uh, they spent the night partying, but they got home the next morning and but hung over, and it was then that the enormity of what they'd done began to dawn on Father Kelly. Oh, my Lord, he said, we're going to have to confess this misdemeanor. Don't worry, replied Father O'Rourke. I've already thought about it. Here's what we're going to do. You get changed and go into the confessional, and I'll tell you about my misdeeds, and you can absolve me. Then I'll do the same for you. So a little while later, Father O'Rourke went into the church, entered the confessional, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. I went out with a friend to celebrate Christmas last night and got drunk, had relations with women, danced to wicked music, and used foul language. Father Kelly replied, God is patient and forgiving, and so am I. Do five our fathers, five Hail Marys, and your sins will be forgiven. Short while later, their positions were reversed, and Father Kelly confessed everything from the night before in great detail. This is an outrage, exclaimed Father O'Rourke. What kind of priest are you? Do 500 Our Fathers, 500 Hail Marys, donate all your income for the next three months to the church, go right around the church on your knees 50 times asking God's forgiveness as you do so, then come back to me and maybe I'll consider absolution. What? said the astonished Father Kelly. What about our agreement? Father O'Rourke replied, What I do with my time off is one thing, but I take my job very seriously. This morning we're thinking about one little phrase that occurs twice in one of our Christmas readings. It's actually the last reading we will have tonight from John chapter 1. Let me read verses 14 to 17. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's that little phrase, grace and truth, I want to focus on. That in just a few verses, John says it twice. Verse 14, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Those two words seem to contradict each other. Those two words seem to be almost opposite. It's almost like we've got two boxes. We've got truth and we've got grace. Please stand the table. And grace is simply us getting what we don't deserve. Us getting Favor from God when we don't deserve it. I've done something wrong. I deserve to be punished. But instead of being punished, I get his forgiveness. I, get, I deserve hell. I deserve wrath. I deserve judgment. But I get mercy. I get love. And I get acceptance from God. That's grace. It's not, or it's getting what I don't deserve. I'm lavished in his love and goodness. Truth is simply the reality of how things are according to God. 
We can't change truth. We can't negotiate truth. It's not down to popular opinion. Truth is simply how things are. And as Christians, it feels that most of the time we have to pick one or the other. We're either all about grace or we're all about truth. We treat people with grace or we treat people with truth. It's very difficult to hold them both together. It's much more easy to side with one or the other. Because grace and truth, like I've already said, seem to contradict each other. Even in families, most of you probably had one parent who was more grace and one who was more truth. Good cop, bad cop. I'll not ask which one you are in your family if you're a parent. But one who, who was more lenient and always, oh, come on, leave them alone. They were all, and the other one's going, I'm going to whoop, you know. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and maybe you had a parent, maybe your parents were like that, and I wonder which one you liked more. But the reality is that grace and truth are very difficult to hold together. It feels like a dog with two tennis balls in front of him. And one tennis ball has got grace written on it. And one tennis ball has got truth. And he bites into the tennis ball with grace. But then he sees the one with truth and he tries to bite into it. But to bite into the truth one, he has to let go of the grace one. And as soon as he bites into that one, then he, if he wants that one, he has to let go of that one. And that's how it feels like if we want grace, we've got to let go of truth. And if we want truth, we've got to let go of grace. And as I think about my experience over 28 years of being a Christian, I've seen both extremes. And I've been at churches with both extremes. And I've probably lived at both extremes myself. I'm sure many of you have as well. Let's think about this. It's all about truth. On the one hand, there's those who are really big into truth. These are Christians for whom everything's black and white. There's no gray, no in between. It's either right or it's wrong. And they have a lot of rules, a lot of thou shalt and thou shalt not. In Jesus' day, they were called the Pharisees. They were all about the truth. They knew the Bible back to front, and they were about making sure that everybody kept the word of the law. Today in Christian circles, we sometimes call them fundamentalists, although I'm not sure where that name came from because there's not a lot of fun, just dementalists. Um, <laughs> Whenever you're talking to them, if you've ever met one of those people, you're always conscious about saying something that's not sound. You're out for dinner with them, and they ask you to say grace, and afterwards they point out three theological errors that you made in your pre-dinner prayer. They have a verse for everything, normally from the King James Version. Anything new or modern is at least suspect, if not heretical. Any songs that were written after the 19th century are definitely dodgy. They're, they watch Christians who are exuberant and passionate about their faith and they think that they're immature. That if they would just grow up and be serious like them, they would be okay. I remember speaking in a conference once about, um, about a rise, a, a thing I'd started when I was in Lurgan. And I was asked to speak about how we'd managed to reach so many 20s and 30s. It had grown at this stage to over 200 people, and most of them were in the 20s and 30s age bracket. And I was asked to speak about that. And then there was another pastor coming on straight after me, uh, speaking about growth in his church in Donegal. And 
it was a fairly conservative meeting, but I, I was asked, what can you attribute to the growth? And I said, I have to be really honest. We were plateaued at 50 for about three years, and then we started teaching about the Holy Spirit, inviting the Holy Spirit in, ministering in the gifts of the Spirit, and in six months we grew to 200 people. And that's all I can tell you is when the Holy Spirit was welcome, people wanted to be there. And I finished my talk, and the next guy from Donegal got up, and he said, I've just listened to that young man over there. And I have to say, I was once like him, but then I grew up and matured in my faith. (laughs) True story. And so afterwards, I gave him the right hand of fellowship. Um, But completely true, it was almost like if you're passionate, if you're excited, if you're exuberant about your faith, you're immature. But if you're really serious and intense, then you're mature. They're perfectly orthodox in their sermons, but they're often incredibly boring. I was going to say anybody ever sat through a boring sermon, but I'm not going to risk that (laughs) right now. I just, I played it back in my head and I thought about the response. They're big into guilt. They're big into shame. Making you feel bad when you do something wrong, when you don't live up to their standards. They look at anyone who's not exactly like them with suspicion as if they're not real Christians. They're the real Christians, you're second class Christians. Because you don't dress like them, you don't use their version of the Bible, you don't worship like them, you don't wear hats like them, whatever it is. They're the real Christians and you might make it into heaven but we're not so sure. I'm sure you've met people like that. I know I have. You all have, I can tell, listen to the giggling in the room. Some of you used to be those people, didn't you? You know, like if you belong to a certain denomination, you definitely can't be a Christian. I mean, if you're Church of Ireland, that's you. Like, like seriously. When Becky's grandfather, God rest his soul, he was a wonderful wee man, and I got all with him in the end. But uh, he was a wee mission hall man. And uh, first time he met me, or no, first time Becky said that she was going to marry a Church of Ireland minister, his words were, well, well on your own head, be it. You'll reap what you sow. That's what he said there. Honestly, in the end, like I say, I did get on well with them. And, uh, but uh, it was a rocky start, let's just say. If you believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like I said, some people will think that you're heretical. If you listen to secular music, go to the cinema. I had a friend in school who wouldn't go near the cinema. If you don't go to the cinema, that's fine. But they had about seven TVs around the house, um, which I just didn't get. Um, if you go to a pub, God forbid, then you're worldly, you're a backslider. Laughter, fun, and pleasure equals sin. There was an old uh, writer called H.L. Mencken, and he described Puritanism as this. Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And that is what a lot of Christians, it seems like. If this haunting fear that someone somewhere is having fun, and we had better put a stop to it. And that's very often the stereotype on TV, isn't it? The old dot cotton figure on EastEnders. That, that very sort of angry, narrow-minded, judgmental person. And I know I've painted an extreme picture, but we've all met those people. We've all been around those circles. When I, I lived in the States for a few years after university, and I went to a very conservative church that was all about the Bible, and I loved the teaching. And I'm so appreciative for the time there. I spent two years there. And, and I, I went to this church because I loved the teaching of the Word of God. But they were very conservative. And one Sunday morning, I got to preach in one of the groups to um, the, the university students, a couple of hundred university students. And uh, 
And I preached about the prodigal son and grace and how the father welcomed him and embraced him. And the pastor of that college ministry, uh, Rick, came up to me afterwards with tears in his eyes. And he said, I, I could give you the best theological definition of grace, but I've never experienced grace in my life. I've never heard that God really loves me, that God runs towards me, that God embraces me in my sin. He knew all the theology in his head and it just never made his way, its way to his heart. When we lived in Dublin, people would often say to us, what's the biggest difference between churches in the north and south? And I, I was probably always generalizing, but I always said this. In the north, we are very strong on head, and on, on truth, on doctrine, on, on theology, on getting your beliefs right. And in the south, they're much stronger on heart. It's just passion, it's emotion, it's, it's feeling good in worship. And, 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 and maybe the theology isn't always right and there's been an awful lot of dodgy churches in the south open and close and, and there's a lot of flux in churches down south. But, but they're very passionate and exuberant about their faith but they don't have deep foundations. And then people would say, well, which do you prefer? And I would struggle because I actually don't prefer either. I, I don't like narrow, judgmental, harsh, hard Christianity. And I don't like wishy-washy if it feels, you know, just it's all about experience. It doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. And while leaning towards grace is often a good thing, it can also become a very dangerous thing. Let's think about this. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. When taken to the extreme, churches that are only about grace can become very wishy-washy. They just want to blend in with the world. They don't really have anything much to say about anything. They tend to talk about things like recycling and getting rid of nuclear weapons. I don't have any nuclear weapons to get rid of, so it's irrelevant to me. But... and, and I do have a recycling bin somewhere. But, uh, but that's kind of, you know, if we could just all be nice people and be nice to each other and if everybody could just get along and if we could all just, you know, like a Coca-Cola thing, I'd like to teach the world to sing. And if we could all just wear matching sweatshirts and hug, hug it out, we, you know, the world would be fine. And, and, and they're lovely, nice, kind, tolerant people. And they, they're tolerant of everyone. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. It doesn't matter what, your, you know, what, what way you want to lean sexually on any given day. It doesn't matter what your belief is. It doesn't matter what your behavior is. They water the gospel down to the point where Jesus is someone who makes no demands of you whatsoever. Just come to Jesus and live as you want. And that's really the way our culture leans. Our culture right now is a very liberal culture. Our culture right now is a grace culture. Our culture right now is a how dare you judge me culture. How dare you tell me how to live. Like really, that, that, that phrase, who are you to judge me? As long as I'm not hurting anyone else. Isn't that the popular phrase in our culture? There's no such thing as right or wrong. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else. People used to say this, I think. You know what they say now? I feel. It's the biggest shift I have noticed in the last 20 years. People used to say, what do you think about that? And now they say, how do you feel about that? Which is completely different. Because feelings are so subjective where thinking is about truth and rationality and reason. And in this culture of hyper offense where people are always looking for reasons to be offended 
feelings can get upset very easily. People get incredibly emotional when you say anything that upsets their feelings. And therefore, as Christians, the tendency is to shrink back and not say anything that might remotely offend anyone. I love what one guy, Ben Shapiro, says. He just says this. When people say, you hurt my feelings, he goes, facts don't care about feelings. My facts don't care about your feelings. Like, if if the facts that there are two genders, male and female, bar very, Peter Linus said that, tiny, 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 tiny person. But the fact that there are male or female offends you and hurts your feelings, that's okay. But the facts that God created us male and female doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> like, I'm not going to change the facts because you feel bad about them. Maybe you need to change your feelings to bring them in line with the facts. Which sounds a little harsh, but that is our culture where everybody's looking for a reason to be offended. And about four of you probably are right now if you're visiting with us this morning. And that's okay. Stay for another few weeks. There'll be plenty more times. Don't you worry. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. He was a good man. He was a, you know, a good teacher. He was a Galilean carpenter. He was just this guy who just told us to love one another. He was a good example. No. He was the son of God. doesn't matter if you believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection. Yes, it actually does. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe in those things. Because if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, and if he didn't rise from the dead, he wasn't the son of God, and he didn't save you from your sins, and you're dead in sins. It doesn't matter if you get drunk and sleep around and lie and cheat. Who am I to judge? It actually does matter because the Bible says that when Jesus comes into your life, he changes your life. In the Anglican church today, which I'm a part of, we are a mess at the minute because there's a whole group in the Anglican church who are trying to accommodate culture and and lower everything to the lowest common denominator. And they're the churches that are emptying. They think, what? there's this delusion that if we can just be nice and lower the bar and just be... You know, just get rid of all truth and just say anything goes, anything's acceptable, we're tolerant of everyone, then the world will come flocking in. When the reality is that those are the churches that are becoming Indian restaurants, carpet warehouses and mosques. While the churches that are growing and thriving and expanding and taking ground for the kingdom are those that are passionately um, and confidently and compassionately preaching the word of God. Why? Because people deep in their heart want truth. There's something within the human heart that says, I want truth. And I, don't, I get enough rubbish out there. I get enough lies out there. I get enough fake news out there. Tell me the truth. There's something in the human heart that when we speak the truth, people might be offended by it, but it resonates with them. Even non-Christians. Even non-Christians appreciate when you tell them the truth. They might get angry, they might get offended, but at least you're not lying to them like most other people. George Orwell said this in his book 1984. At a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. And that's the day we are living in. When it's all about grace. I was talking to somebody recently and they were saying about their friends who were part, had been part of another church not a million miles from here but had left and I, th- I think they were maybe here, I'm not sure. And, but they asked them, why did you leave? And they said, we just got told every week, we got, we, we got tired of being told every week how amazing we were. 
And they said, what do you mean? They said, well, sometimes we want to leave church a wee bit convicted. Just sometimes we want to leave church not feeling like it was all about us, but like there is a holy God and that we do need to get right with him. People want truth. Imagine you take your car for a service to the garage and you go to pick it up later and say, that car's amazing. You must be an automotive genius. There's nothing wrong. That car's perfect. And later on, you're driving home and your brakes go and you crash and you nearly die and your family nearly die. And you go back to the mechanic and you say, you told me my brakes were perfect. My brakes were a mess. He says, no, but you see, I, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. I didn't want you to feel bad. Plus, to be honest, I, I was afraid if I told you your brakes didn't work, they might, you, might, you might be upset with me. And I didn't also want to show off because my brakes worked really well. And I, so I didn't want to offend you that way. And, and, and I want this to be, I want this garage to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted no matter what's going on. You would say, I don't care. I just want you to tell me the truth because this is life and death. I want the truth. I didn't come here for an ego boost. People need the truth. Jesus says a time and time in the Gospels, what does he say? I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. He also said this, you will know the truth. And once you know the truth, what does the truth do? It doesn't bind you. It doesn't uh, uh, bring you into bondage. It doesn't bring you into oppression. It liberates. It brings freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth brings freedom, not bondage. Legalism brings bondage. Truth is just as important in our lives as grace. And to neglect it, we run the risk of ending up with our lives becoming a mess because we have no secure foundation to stand on. Someone once said this, grace without truth is trying to make a skyscraper out of jelly. It just falls apart. Why? Because it's all about grace and truth. And I know there's two extremes I've painted here. And a lot of it depends on your background, your church background, your theological beliefs. Some of it depends on your upbringing. Some of it depends on your personality. Some people lean towards truth because they like everything to be certain and definite and, and the control freak personalities, which would be me, quite honestly. I like truth. I like black and white. I like everything in a nice tidy box. And some of us lean much more towards grace because by personality we're just much sort of heart people. We're much more kind of, oh, let's just go and get along. And, 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 and a lot of it sometimes is to do with personality, but we are never, our, our, our behavior and our beliefs are never just to be determined by our personality, but by the Bible and what the Bible teaches. And when we look at Jesus, we see someone who fully and completely embodied both. Jesus embraced both and refused to let go of either. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was 100% lion and 100% lamb. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. And you're saying there's 600%. When you're eternal and infinite, you can have 600%. He was fully God, fully man, fully lion, fully lamb, fully grace, fully truth. 
He was all of those in one. And so when we come to Jesus, this is what we see. We don't see, he wasn't 50-50, grace and truth. He wasn't half and half. He was fully both. He was grace and truth wrapped up in one. Because without grace, you can't handle the truth. And without truth, you can't handle grace. I think the greatest example as I finish up is in John chapter 8. Do you remember the woman caught in the act of adultery is dragged before him? And they said to her, Jesus, what should we do with her? The law says she should be stoned to death. And they were right. The law did say that. And I love what Jesus does. Because that was the truth. The truth was that she should have been stoned to death for the act of adultery. I always think it's funny that the man wasn't there. They managed to catch her, but not him. So the truth was that she deserved to be stoned to death. But look what Jesus says to her, verse 11. First of all, he gets down and he writes on the ground. Remember that? He gets down and he writes in the dirt. He writes in the sand. Theologians have spent 2,000 years of ink trying to describe what he wrote on the sand. Do you want to know what the, you want to know what the answer is? We have no idea. But here's the thing. This woman is over here, half naked, if not just clinging to the little bit of clothing that she was dragged out in. These men who are judging her, these Pharisees, these religious leaders are over here. Everybody in the room is looking at her. Jesus bends down and writes in the sand. Where does everybody's attention go? To what he's writing. He takes everybody's eyes off her and puts them on him. In other words, he takes her shame. He takes her disgrace and covers it in grace. And look at what he says to her. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. She deserved condemnation. He says, I don't condemn you. She deserves to be punished, but Jesus lifts condemnation from her. But look at what he says immediately next. Go now and leave your life of sin. He says, you have been leaving a life, leading a life of sin. Now leave it, leave it behind. That's truth. Grace, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's truth. I've offered you grace, and that grace calls you to change. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is an empowerment not to sin. Look at what Titus 2 says, if you put up the next slide there. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Grace teaches us to say yes to anything that we want. No, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace teaches you to say no and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I fear that as a, the church today would have said, neither do I condemn you, but they'd have left out, they'd go and sin no more. But We'd have said, oh, you're all right. What's a wee bit of adultery? Everybody's up to the aisle of adultery anyway these days, you know. Just God loves you, just the way you go. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He says, yes, and I don't condemn you, but I don't want you to keep living like this. I love you the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you the way you are. Grace says everything's okay sometimes. Truth says actually you need to deal with that. 
Grace says you're forgiven. Truth says you need to put things right. Grace says you're fine. Truth says you're a sinner and you need to repent. Grace says no matter what you do to me, I love you. Truth says that's not acceptable and I won't allow you to treat me that way. An emphasis on grace sugarcoats everything. And it might make people feel good, but it will ultimately make them spiritually sick. I love dessert, but I can't live on dessert. If I were to just live on dessert, I would get very sick. And grace is sweet and it's beautiful, but you can't just live on it. You need the meat of the truth in your life and the two go together beautifully. An emphasis on truth just tells people where they're going wrong, where they've made a mess, but it doesn't offer them any hope. It leaves them with shame, guilt and hopelessness. That's what the law did. And that's what Jesus talks about in verse 17. Look at what he says. For the law was, look at what, John says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, the Ten Commandments, the 600 laws, rules of Pharisees had come up with, they were really good at telling you where you'd gone wrong. They just didn't help you do anything right. I was in the hospital visiting somebody on Wednesday, I think it was, and they were about to go for a CAT scan. If you've ever had a CAT scan, I haven't. I've heard one there not that pleasant. But the CAT scan really is just a it's, a, it's a scan of your whole body and it's trying to find out where there's something wrong. And when that girl came out of the CAT scan, she didn't go, well, I'm better now, aren't I? They said, no, but we know what's wrong with you. And the law is a bit like a CAT scan. The law can tell you what's wrong with you, but it can't heal you. When she went through the CAT scan, they said, we now know what's wrong with you, we're now going to treat it. And the law was able to tell you what's wrong, but it had no power to make you better. And that's where Jesus comes in. The law tells you what's wrong. Jesus tells you, this is how you can live right. I can come and live inside you by my spirit. I can give you a new heart. I can give you new desires so that you can live for me. And it's not just one dose of grace he gives us. Look at verse 16, and I am finishing. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace in place, that's a beautiful phrase. Grace in place of grace. In other words, it never runs out. Don't do this anymore. Most of you over 30 something will remember the milkman. Some of you maybe still have the milkman. You don't see them very often. But what you, you got your milk delivered every day by this wee man who drove around at about 4 a.m. in an electric va- car, van. And you drank your two or three bottles of milk during the day. And then at night, what did you do? You put out your empties. And the next morning you got up and there was fresh milk there. It never ran out. And I think that's a little picture about what's going on here. Just as soon as you think grace has run out, there's a new supply. Grace replacing grace. Grace upon grace. That no matter what you've done, you will never exhaust God's grace. There's always more grace available. His mercies are new every morning. Jesus was the full embodiment of grace and truth. And as his church, as his body on earth today, we are called to be the same. You are called, I am called to be people of grace and truth. To speak words of grace and truth to one another. And the world needs both. And how we treat each other when we mess up, we need to be people of grace and truth. Sometimes we need hard conversations. I've had a few this week, but they've always ended in grace. 
in how we treat people when they sin, in how we treat people around sexuality and sexual orientation and abortion and divorce and all of those thorny issues that people get uncomfortable, we need to be a people of grace and truth. And how we share our faith with those who aren't yet Christians, we need to be people who emphasize grace and truth. And how we treat ourselves when we sin, we need to be people of grace and truth. Sometimes we're too hard on ourselves and sometimes we're too light. We need to face up to the reality of our sin and then look at our Savior. And that's where the tension is, grace and truth. But when we look at the cross, we see the perfect picture of grace and truth. The truth was that our sin was separating us from a holy God. The truth was that the wrath of God was rightfully going to be poured out on us. The truth was that we deserve nothing but eternity in hell. That was the truth. But in his grace, God sent his son 2,000 years ago. He became man. He lived the perfect sinless life you and I could never live. He died the death on the cross that you and I should have died. And he rose from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, death, and hell. And he pulled grace and truth together in himself. And he said, in me is found salvation. In me is found life. Justice and mercy are found in me. Grace and truth are beautifully displayed. And so as we celebrate Christmas, let's remember this Jesus was full of grace and truth. And let's be a people of grace and truth. Let's finish with a little story. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person said, I feel bad for you being in that pit. An objective person said, I knew someone would fall into that pit. A Christian scientist said, You only think you're in a pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into a pit. A fundamentalist said, you deserve that pit. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. A realist said, no, that's a pit. An optimist said, things could be worse. A pessimist said, things are going to get worse. An engineer calculated how to get him out of the pit. A geologist told him to have a look around and study and examine and appreciate the pit. The council planning authority asked him if he had a permit for the pit. (laughs) The revenue wanted to know if he was paying taxes on his pit. A politician avoided talking about the pit altogether because they weren't working. (laughs) A mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit and the rate of his fall. A news reporter wanted an exclusive story on his pitfall. A professor gave him a lecture about the principles of the pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A health and wealth preacher said, confess you're not in a pit. Don't even confess you're in a pit because if you confess you're not in a pit, you'll not be in a pit. An evangelical said he needed to be saved from his pit. Jesus saw the man, got into the pit, lifted him out of it, stayed there, but on the third day, God lifted him out of the pit. 